Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. John, you were recently telling me that you had kindly received a book related to early photography in Taiwan. And this book was for an exhibition in 2021 organized by the National Museum of Fine Arts on the early history of photography in Taiwan. Looking at the book blurb here, it gives a summary of the exhibition. It says, quote, It examines the power relations of photographic techniques, colonial experience, and modernity. Very kind of them to send me those books. Lovely printing quality and great photographs, but... Yeah, but great pictures do not necessarily a great podcast make. Indeed, and the academic framing, well, it's not a language I speak. Luckily for us, we can concentrate on the most important early photographer here in Taiwan, John Thompson. And you know what? As well as being a great photographer, he was a pretty decent writer as well. Thompson visited this island in 1871. Yes, and I'm not sure how long he stayed, probably just about three weeks. But what a productive time. His pictures of Formosa are the best from that decade. And a very valuable record of the indigenous Pingpu peoples, uh, the lowland aborigines in southwestern Taiwan. So let's rewind a second and figure out who this Mr. Thompson was. So John Thompson was born in 1837 in Edinburgh, Scotland. He learned the principles of photography during an apprenticeship with an optical instrument manufacturer. In 1862, at the age of 24, he set up for Singapore to join his older brother, who was working there as a watchmaker and also running a photographic studio. Thompson then established his own photographic business in Singapore and later moved to Hong Kong. During his decade in Asia, he traveled extensively, photographing people and places everywhere he went. In today's episode, we'll be drawing on the Taiwan chapter in Thompson's book, published in 1875, The Straits of Malacca, Indochina, and China, or 10 Years, Travels, Adventures, and Residence Abroad. <laughs> Whoa, they really liked their long book titles in those days. Indeed. Thompson came by steamship across the Taiwan Strait in April of 1871 from Fujian, where he had met Dr. James Maxwell, a fellow Scot. This Maxwell was a medical missionary in Tainan. And Thompson was intrigued by tales he heard of the Aborigines. He decided to come here. Maxwell lived in Tainan, but they headed to Takao, modern-day Kaohsiung, and they arrived on April 2nd, 1871. It was a rough crossing. As we've described in previous episodes, getting into Takao or Kaohsiung Port back then was not an easy task. So as they approached Takao, a Chinese pilot nicknamed Opium, <laughs> yes, his name was Opium, came to the steamship and then brought them to a secure anchorage about a mile from the shore. The heavy sea made it too dangerous, even in a surf boat, to make for the narrow mouth of the harbor. So Dr. Maxwell uh, and Thompson, they decided to go ashore with opium. Uh, 
trusting to his local knowledge uh, that he would land them safely somewhere along the coast. Uh, this is what they did, uh, riding a smaller boat through the surf and landing on a beach. So as they made their way through Takao or Kaohsiung, Thompson was struck with the tropical appearance of the place. It reminded him of villages in the Malayan archipelago, except for the huge pigs roaming free about the settlement. They finally come to the mission station of the English Presbyterian Church and meet with Reverend Hugh Ritchie. Reverend Ritchie warns Thompson of the, quote, lawless state which prevailed in the southern part of the island. Thompson took Ritchie's advice and did not venture into the Aboriginal areas in the south. Instead, he went with Dr. Maxwell to Taiwan Fu, Tainan, the capital, 25 miles further north. And they went on a steamship called Formosa. Thompson was amazed how the harbour was gone, uh, the harbour from the Dutch times, uh, how it had been filled in by sediment. 210 years later, even the water offshore was so shallow that they anchored two miles out to sea. They went ashore in sailing rafts made of large bamboo poles, the poles bent by fire to give a curved shape. Thompson writes, quote, The most curious feature about the strange vessel is the accommodation provided for passengers. This is nothing more than a capacious tub. The tub into which we descended would hold four persons, and when we squatted down inside it, we could just see over the top. Not feeling very comfortable, we came out and sat on the bare raft, to which we had at times to cling manibus pettibusk as the waves broke over us. Manibus pettibusk, uh, Latin for hands and feet. Interesting use of Latin in these old books. Uh, Latin was a school subject in those days, and thus the expectation was that educated readers could understand it. And yeah, it's funny. Sometimes uh, they used Latin for naughty bits, like uh, I'll be reading some old account of uh, concubines being taken into the master's bedroom, and uh, then it switches to Latin, which I, I don't know. <laughs> So it's like, uh, excuse my Latin. <laughs> so anyway, they're clinging by their hands and their feet to mm -hmm. this boat thing. That's a tough arrival, especially when you've got all this expensive photographic equipment. But he's in Tainan, back then Taiwan Fu, the capital of Formosa. Armed with an official introduction, uh, he paid a visit to the Taotai, the governor of Taiwan Prefecture, and he was escorted into the government offices, and he notes, quote, Passing through the Hall of Justice, I noticed various instruments of torture to extract truth from a witness or confession from the lips of a prisoner, end Ooh, quote. Spooky. He was then taken to a room and presented to a Chinese man who held out his hand and addressed him in perfect English, saying, Good morning, Mr. Thompson. I am glad to see you here. When did you come over? Thompson recognized the speaker, after a while, as someone he had met in Hong Kong. This guy said he was the nephew of the Tao Tai. There was some polite partaking of tea and fruit, and Thompson's new friend, who seemed to think the foreigner was, quote, on some secret mission. He tried to uh, extract information as to Thompson's intentions. Thompson insisted his only purpose was to go into the interior to see the Aborigines. 
Happily for him, they didn't use one of those various instruments of torture to extract a <laughs> confession. So anyway, the Tao Tai's yeah. nephew, he's wondering why this foreigner would go through so much trouble, such a hard journey on foot, merely for sightseeing. You know, you're risking being killed and depend upon it, he assured Thompson, you will never get near them. You will be shot with poisoned arrows or lose yourself in the forest paths. But, you know, come and see the Tao Tai. The Tautai, the governor, was, quote, rather a good-looking man of middle age and said to be remarkable for his administrative ability, end quote. Um, but he was also suspicious why Thompson wanted to visit the Aborigines. But he was polite, and later, quote, in return for a portrait which I took for him, he sent me a small box of tea and some delicious dried lychees. You can understand the suspicion from the authorities. A foreigner heading into the Aboriginal mountains, risking his life for what, right? For some pictures. It's natural, especially back then, to suspect there might be some secret military or commercial purpose. Indeed, indeed. Yes, because that was often the case. Uh, <laughs> take, for example, one of John Thompson's fellow Scots, Robert Fortune, the man who, a couple of decades earlier, stole the secrets of tea and some tea plants, leading to the rise of tea production in India and Ceylon, and thus undercutting China's most important export. That's an interesting story as well. But anyway, we got to go back to Thompson. Thompson got a pretty friendly reception in spite of, or perhaps because of, an incident just three years before. The British had shelled and then stormed Tainan's port of Anping. You know, some of that good old-fashioned imperialist gunboat diplomacy. Mm. Speaking of conflicts between the Brits and the Qing, Thompson visited a large tract of land outside Tainan. It was known as the Execution Ground. Thompson wanted to take a picture, but he found there was nothing there that lent it pictorial grace. So he gave up. And the reason he wanted to photograph it was because nearly 30 years before, in August of 1842, nearly 200 British individuals, and most of these were British subjects, they were survivors from two shipwrecks, they were executed at this execution ground. Yes, that's another story we'll be telling because there are actually two diaries uh, from those prisoners. Anyway... Dr. Maxwell and uh, John Thompson, they set off from Taiwan Fu on April 11th, carried in sedan chairs 10 miles across the plain, a highly cultivated plain with fields of rice, sweet potatoes, and sugarcane. So we are still in the Han Chinese section of Taiwan. And Thompson writes, The women were out at work in the fields. Most of them had the compressed feet so much in vogue among the females of Fujian province and hence they seem to limp about uneasily over the furrows. Bound feet. Yeah, people often think that foot binding wasn't done in Taiwan, or that it was confined to the upper classes, but not the case. Yeah, foot binding. Another story we got to tell. Okay, anyway, Thompson and Maxwell halted at the first range of hills, sent back the chairs, and awaited the arrival of his quote-unquote boy, Ahong and the porters, who were still way back in the rear. I don't know much about this Ahong fellow. Thompson refers to him as his boy, but as you know, this just means a servant. Doesn't mean he was young. He was Thompson's assistant, who uh, Thompson had trained back in Singapore, so by now he's something of a photographic expert himself. 
Yeah, but not deserving of a sedan chair, evidently. Um, and, you know, it's a pity that Thompson doesn't say more about this faithful assistant. There's just a mention of Ahong in regard to religion in his writings. He says Ahong had no particular religious views at all, but believed a good life was having, quote, plenty of pork while alive, then to be laid in a comfortable coffin and buried in a dry place, and hereafter to have one's spirit fed and clothed continuously by surviving sons. So a pretty traditional Chinese idea there. One thing <laughs> we do know about Ahong, um, he was unaccustomed to walking and was already foot sore. He'd put on these straw sandals, which he was unused to, and poor guy, he had blisters on his feet. Anyway, the party headed across a strange landscape of dry hills, uh, barren slopes, uh, strange pits. This is a landscape of sedentary rockways scraped off by the rising central ranges, the clash of tectonic plates and fault lines, uh, Taiwan's so-called badlands. Mm-hmm. Also known as Moon World. It's in Kaohsiung. It's up in the Tianliao district, right on the border with Tainan. And yeah, because of its barren appearance and like gray look, uh, we call it Moon World. And I have to say, it does look a little like a, the moon. Yes, the party arrived at the first settlement of what the Chinese called Peipohuan. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Plains Aborigines. So Aborigines who had adopted Chinese ways. But not everything. Thankfully, not foot binding. The local people, so these would be the Plains indigenous people, came out in great numbers to meet and welcome Dr. Maxwell. Thompson visited several of the houses and found them clean, well-arranged, and comfortable. The homes were built with a bamboo framework, which was covered in reeds or split bamboo. And the whole thing afterwards was plastered over with clay and finished when dry with an outer coating of this white lime made out of limestone rock. Right. Burn limestone rock down and you get this lime powder. Okay. The next night was spent at the village of Baxa, which had a small Christian chapel. And it was here that Thompson took one of my favorite of his pictures. It's of two local hunters, and they have a Tugo, a native Taiwan dog with them. It's great. And definitely we're going to post that on our website, formosafiles.com. They continue the next day into the steep hills, so they get good views, but Thompson's worried about his equipment, for which he has six baggage bearers, six porters. Hmm. So how heavy would you estimate this photography equipment uh, would be? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if the weight would have to be at least 100 kilograms. 100 kilograms? Uh, why? Why so heavy? It's not the camera itself, which is wood and uh, you have the glass of the lens, but the weight comes from the glass plates. The camera doesn't use film. There's a separate glass plate used for each picture. That weight adds up. And then there are all the chemicals needed and the weight of a portable darkroom. Mm, that makes sense. But okay, we better explain this step by step. Thompson was using a photography technique called wet plate collodion which was invented in 1851, so 20 years before, and would gradually be replaced in the following decade. The name collodion came from the main chemical that was used, a binding agent made from cotton, and the wet plate, the reason it was called wet, is because <laughs> it was a liquid. The process was difficult. Things had to be done before it dried. We're talking like a matter of 10 minutes or so. All right, let's go through the steps. First, set up your camera and 
the subjects. Then you go into a portable dark room, get a glass plate, polish it with a solvent, make sure it's clean and no dust on it. Then you get a liquid mix of collodion and various chemicals poured together. You put this liquid onto the center of the glass, then move it around so all the plate is covered in a thin layer. Then dip the glass plate into a bath containing silver nitrate. And this makes the plate sensitive to light. Yes. After a few minutes, take the glass plate out and place it in a light, tight plate holder. A light, tight plate holder. So, um, in other words, a thin box? Yes. Right. So now you go out of the dark room, go to your camera, you check the image, uh, then you insert the plate holder into the back of the camera. You tell your subjects not to move and you pull out the front side of this plate holder. Then you remove the lens cap. Okay, so now the plate is getting exposed for the required amount of time. And that required amount of time might be just a couple of seconds. Exactly. Yeah, a couple of seconds. Yes, then the lens cap is placed back over the lens and the front side of the plate holder inserted back. Now, uh, the plate holder can be removed from the camera. And then you've got to rush back to the dark room. Yeah, once back in the dark room, the glass plate is removed from the plate holder. A developer is then poured onto the plate and you've got to move the plate around. You move the liquid around on the plate, spread evenly, the image begins to emerge. Then at the right moment, water is poured over the plate to stop the developing image. Next, the plate is placed in a bath of fixer to permanently preserve the image. Oh, Yeah, whoa. Um, and we're not done with the steps. After that, it's washed clean. Yeah, and still more. After it's dry, it has to be covered in a layer of varnish to protect the fragile surface. And uh, as with the other steps, this requires great care. Too much varnish uh, exposure could dissolve the image. And after all of that, voila, you have one picture on a glass plate. This is difficult, stressful work. I mean, it's to me, it's almost unimaginable. Sorry for uh, such a long, detailed description, but I think it's worth going through these steps just to give an idea of how difficult the process was, especially out in the field. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The time pressure problem is amazing. You had only 10 minutes or so from the coating of the plate in the darkroom to developing... So every time I look at an old picture of Thompson's, I'm going to imagine him in his tent darkroom preparing the plate and coming out and heading back to the tent and carefully handling the plate and chemicals. Wow, just busy. Yes, for each old picture you see, and in total in Taiwan, he took 61 photographs. Imagine, yeah, for each picture, imagine the difficult work before and after and the precision, the skill needed. And apart from the actual photo taking and developing there, there were issues of storage, transportation, and preparation. Thompson mentions one night when he and his servant, Ah Hong, were busy till about two in the morning. They're boiling down nitrate of silver bath solution, boiling it down in a pot. A long, tedious job. They're taking turns sleeping and watching the fire, watching the liquid, the fire, sleepier and sleepier. Both men drifted off into pleasant dreams. Then, as the whole liquid evaporated, the fumes caught fire. A flash of light, and Thompson writes, quote, I heard a terrible shriek and started up to find the scared face of a savage old woman glaring close to mine. She vanished instantly into the darkness when she had appeared. 
Ahong, disturbed in his sleep, caught sight of the apparition and declared that it was the, well, never mind what. Actually, both men were spooked by the ghastly vision and its mysterious vanishing. Okay, so I'm not a qualified doctor or even an unqualified doctor, but I wonder if they were hallucinating off of the fumes of the chemicals. Yeah, could be right. Uh, Definitely a possibility. Uh, Such a, a difficult photographic process, and it would arouse suspicions from the locals, right? What strange black arts uh, was the white man engaged in? Mm. Dr. Maxwell was, I think, the key to getting good pictures. The trust, the friendship, the goodwill he'd established with the people as a medical missionary. And so he could ask them to be photographed, and he could tell them, look, everything's okay, you're not going to be harmed. Absolutely. And credit goes to the people themselves, so the people they met along the way who were friendly, those in the villages, in the wilds, the strangers they came upon. Even after a late night boiling down chemicals, they would be up and off early the next morning. But at least they were rewarded with what Thompson called some of the grandest scenery he had ever beheld. Thompson's narrative talks of splendid views of valleys, mountain ranges, But among his pictures from this trip, there aren't a whole lot of great scenery pictures. There are some impressive riverbeds. He's got a a picture of a range of hills in the background, but not... Yeah, not as impressive as the pictures of people. I guess just the the limitations of this uh, very difficult photographic process. Yes, the wet collodion process shows colors in a different way from the black and white film we're familiar with. Warm colors appear dark, so a bright yellow flower appears black, and any cold color appears uh, uniformly uh, light. Okay, so a blue sky with clouds would just be sort of whitish. Yep, both blue and white are cold, so landscapes look washed out. They're, They're skies anyway. Thompson actually mentioned the frustrations of this in his travel account of uh, being unable to capture the rich flora, the giant lilies, uh, the orchids, uh, the details of rocks and landforms. Yeah, it is really beautiful up there. We're talking about north parts of Kaohsiung. Yeah, gorgeous. So here's a passage from Thompson's writing. He says, quote, We halted a while to admire the intense loveliness of the mountain gorge and to obtain a photograph of the scene regretting all the time that the picture on glass would, after all, give us but bare light and shade, with none of the varied tints. As they climbed further east and higher into the mountains, the danger of attack from, uh, quote-unquote, untamed aborigines grew, and they had an armed escort for a section, the men's matchlocks at the ready. An armed party of six actually came upon them while they were enjoying a swim in a clear, deep pool. But it was a group of friendly Pepoians. I don't know how they pronounce that, but what they mean are the Pingpu lowland indigenous people. So this party of six was out on a fishing excursion. And Thompson writes, quote, one old fellow was cleverly shooting his fish with an arrow while the others were hunting for crabs amongst the rocks, twisting off their legs and devouring them shell and all alive. The younger members of the party caught fish by beating the water with a bamboo rod and thus stupefying their prey. Crab sashimi, uh, no thanks. 
<laughs> but you know, when I uh, was out there a while back with uh, Ame, we went up there and did the same thing. We looked under rocks for little crustaceans and stuff. It was pretty cool. You didn't eat them whole though, did you? No, we did not. We brought them back to be cooked. Right. Civilized. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Thompson ends his Formosa chapter praising the good faith and honesty of the lowland Aborigines he met. Quote, During the entire journey, my boxes were frequently left open and unprotected, and yet I never lost the value of a pin. And he bids farewell to Taiwan with the words, quote, But I must now quit this island, remarkable no less for its beauty than for the hospitality of its simple inhabitants. So, what happened to the people that we have listed in this story? Well, we'll start with that Reverend Ritchie, the missionary in Kaohsiung. He died of fever eight years later, aged only 39, and he was buried in the Takao Foreign Cemetery, very sadly, beside his three-year-old son. Wow. Maxwell, medical missionary, he retired, went to London in 1885, lived to his mid-90s. Mm, and Thompson lived to be a good old age, too. After leaving Formosa, Thompson spent the next three years traveling in China, including far up the Yangtze River. He returned to Britain in 1872, settled in London. He published magazine pieces and books. In 1881, he was appointed photographer to the British royal family by Queen Victoria. And the local people in that area, some of the descendants are still there, which you can read about in a wonderful Taipei Times article by Katie Huiwen Hong. We'll put a link on our website, formosafiles.com. Definitely. And yeah. uh, as a Kaohsiung resident, I just want to once more put in a plug for visiting some of these areas in the northeast part of Kaohsiung. They're a little bit out of the way, but man, it's worth it. Okay. You know, there's one follow-up uh, I could mention. This uh, wet plate uh, collodion process uh, would very soon be replaced by techniques uh, more familiar to us today. Familiar to, well, um, <laughs> those of us who are over 40. Yeah. In the 1890s, we see camphor being used to make celluloid film. Camphor from Taiwan's camphor trees. And Taiwan was the, the world's greatest source for camphor at this time. So we see an increasing harvesting of camphor up in the mountains. And this would have consequences for the Aboriginal people. Okay, well, definitely make sure to check FormosaFiles.com for all the pictures that we're going to put up there and links to that article you mentioned. Thanks for listening. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John. Bye. <laughs>